Do you have the firepower to take down Microsoul? Well, let's find out with Tyrion this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 94 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and this week we are here to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So, yeah, it's been a, been a little while since the last show. Uh, things have been hella busy with, you know, as I've been talking about the last couple of episodes, the... Uh, the pending arrival of the UM baby, uh, you know, <laughs> lots of uh, stuff going on around the house. Uh, I had to paint a bedroom over the weekend, so that delayed uh, me putting out the show a little bit and all that. But uh, you know what? I had some time to put out some video of uh, of the game. Had some time to have a little fun, so it hasn't all just been you know work and worry and anxiety about life changes and uh, and stuff like that. But a uh, bit of a deadline to get this show out because uh, tomorrow, in fact, so this is Wednesday evening and this, this show will be out on Wednesday evening. Uh, tomorrow at noon on Thursday, uh, I will be uh, having my wisdom teeth removed. So I kind of figured that getting the show out before my mouth became a massive bleeding and cuts and stitches and my brain became a pile of poo from brain killer, brain killers, painkillers and all that. Probably better to get the show out before that. So uh, yeah, lots of stuff uh, going on. It's baby shower next weekend. And uh, yeah, just whoa, life is uh, life's a little crazy with the end of the summer and uh, and all that. And um you know, sort of because of that, I uh, I messed up in the last show, and uh, there were actually two emails that had come in uh, for the last show on Doom that were actually about the show before that on Day of the Tentacle, and I want to thank Alima for uh, for letting me know that I I missed those, and uh, so we're gonna jump right into emails and uh, and get to those two that I missed. I I'm very very sorry. I you know I do talk about how much I how much I love getting emails and how much I love, you know, the, the interactions that I have with you guys. So, and, and I don't think I've ever, unless someone has explicitly asked me to not read an email on the show, I have never not read an email on the show. So, you know, as a first for everything, I guess, uh, my brain's getting a little scattered with all the stuff going on. And so, uh, without further ado, uh, we, our first overdue email is from Alima and she writes, hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Sorry about this super late email and uh, for missing the mark for the Day of the Tentacle episode. That's just life for you. Sometimes uh, it just gets away from you. Day of the Tentacle, such a great, great adventure game. I have many memories of playing with my sister, figuring out the puzzles, hopping from one character to the next. Uh, We were particularly fond of Laverne, of course, with her quirky, completely out-of-this-world personality. And since I eventually went into Medicine 2... I felt she gave me a glimpse of things to come. Carrying a scalpel around? Yeah, right. Uh, Amberia Akago is right, though. In retrospect, she's totally psychotic, and gosh, I find her all the more hilarious now. Uh, we'd never played Maniac Mansion, but still jumped right in. The house and its inhabitants quickly becoming familiar. Always a fan of the work of LucasArts regulars Michael Land, Peter McConnell, and Clint Bajakian, the soundtrack became a favorite. 
absolutely outrageous scenes like the human show and the revised flag of the union have become complete classics. Uh, regarding gameplay, yes, I can confirm that you have the ability to drag an inventory item to another character's portrait in order to flush the item, which, you guessed it, avoids the trek back to your respective chronogen. And since we're calling, we're all calling out trolls, here's, a story, here's the story about Washington and cherry trees. A legend would have it that when Washington was six years old, he received a hatchet as a gift and damaged his father's cherry tree. Uh, when his father discovered what he had done, he became angry and confronted him. Young George bravely said, I cannot tell a lie. I did cut it with my hatchet. Uh, Washington's father embraced him and rejoiced that his son's honesty was worth more than a thousand trees. That's pretty much it. A story we tell children about how to be honest, uh, our fir- about how honest our first president was and how we should never tell a lie. Kind of hilarious when you think about that in the context of the game. Ultimately, I just love this game to bits. The art, the humor, the puzzles... It was straightforward enough that I'm pretty sure we'd solve this one without hints. Uh, the characters, it doesn't top Grim Fandango as my all-time favorite adventure game, but it's definitely up there. I really need to get the remastered edition when the next sale hits. So thanks so much for covering it and giving us all the fascinating details of how it came to be. Thanks for mentioning the Thimbleweed Park game. I totally kickstarted the heck out of that project, and I'm really looking forward to it. Anyhow, thanks again. You're always a treat to listen to. Take care and block on. Alima slash Emily. Uh, P.S. Congrats on the UN baby. Yep, you won't be sleeping much come October. Yeah, I have a feeling that I won't be sleeping much come October. And thank you for all those comments. Again, I apologize for uh, for missing out on uh, on this one. It got a little far back in the uh, in the email backlog amidst all the uh, you know spam and stuff that comes into the uh, the UMB cast account. But yeah, amazing. You know, definitely up there is one of my favorite adventure games as well. Just a whole bunch of things went went right. You know, like I talked about back in the Dot episode with, you know, the the art style, the voice recording, the puzzle design. You know, it might be a little simple, but frankly, I sort of like that. So next up, uh, we have our second uh, missed email from Robert. And Robert writes, Hey, Joe, as usual, long email incoming. As usual, great rundown of Day of the Tentacle. I remember when this came out, there was a lot of hype leading up to it among LucasArts point-and-click fans, and it is one of the few games that really lived up to the hype. I feel like more so than any other LucasArts point-and-click, Dot did an amazing job of providing subtle bits of information that would help you solve puzzles. My favorite example is the broken washing machine. You cannot do anything with the broken washing machine during the entire game, However, simply knowing that it's there, is broken, and remains in the exact same broken state in Laverne's future timeline is instrumental to figuring out how to get a certain inventory item to her. I know you know the one I'm talking about, but I don't want to spoil it if I haven't already. Uh, George Washington's teeth and the dirty wagon, or whatever it is, in the colonial period also play into this. The puzzles themselves are pretty weird and arbitrary, but unlike puzzles with arbitrary solutions in other point-and-clicks, mostly from Sierra, but LucasArts was guilty of it too from time to time, uh, they give you enough of a hint so that you would know what you might need to do with them, even if you had no possible way of guessing what the outcome of that action would be. In my effort to avoid spoilers, I may be describing this in such a general way that I make it sound extremely confusing, but those who've played the game will know exactly what I mean and that these things really helped make it more accessible. I'm sure someone else will mention this in an email as well, but you uh, 
asked during the show, and yes, you can indeed drag and drop inventory items onto other characters to quickly send them via the Chronogon without having to walk all the way back to it every time you want to trade something. Needless to say, this was a huge time saver. I didn't realize it either until about halfway through my most recent playthrough. Uh, You mentioned Thimbleweed Park, and I too am super excited about it. Uh, As someone who grew up on the LucasArts point and clicks, I was more than happy to back the project on Kickstarter after seeing one, that Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick were at the helm, and two, that the game they are setting out to make looks both awesome and, of course, reminiscent of the classics they're most famous for. Then, when they released the first trailer a couple months ago, I believe, the trailer alone was so awesome that I'm even more excited for it now. Uh, The more recent trailer is fantastic, too. I can't wait for this to come out. As you mentioned, the dev's transparency during the development is also really cool, especially in a time when video game crowdfunding has frankly gone to shit in so many instances, particularly as broken promises are concerned. I also wanted to respond to a couple of things that someone else wrote for the Dot episode. I think his name was Jason. This listener asked for recommendations of nonfiction books regarding the video game industry or game development. About a year or two ago, I read Masters of Doom, the story of Johns, Carmack, and Romero, how they met, how they made Doom, created its software, etc., etc., and it's an interesting read, although I admit I found the writing awkward in a few spots, a minor complaint compared to the information the book contains. I previously, I particularly, particularly loved hearing about how they would sneak into their workplace on Friday nights, steal their work computers so that they could program the games at home all weekend, and then sneak back in to return them before the work week started. Uh, The same listener also mentioned good-slash-bad mazes in games and how to easily solve a maze. Uh, This made me think of The Maze in Alone in the Dark, which is my favorite worst maze ever, albeit its badness is due mostly to the design of the game rather than the maze itself. Uh, As you may know, there is one maze in the game that comprises one screen of the game. Uh, It's rendered three-dimensionally as the rest of the game is, and you view it from sort of a top-down view. So in theory, it's challenging, but not excruciatingly so. Uh, There's an enormous caveat to this, though if you never happen to pick up one particular item, it was either a lamp or a lighter. I can't remember exactly. I must be having an upper memory block. (laughs) Then uh, you cannot light the room that the maze is in, and the entire screen is literally black, like black as if your monitor was turned off. You cannot even see your own character. And the worst part is that at this point in the game, you cannot return to the mansion where the bulk of the game takes place, which is where this lighter or lamp is. So basically, you're screwed unless you can magically navigate your character through a maze while looking at a 100% black screen. As much as I have nostalgia for classic video games, I'm also extremely glad that game design has progressed in ways such that we usually don't have to put up with crap like this anymore. Uh, Joe, quick question if you have time for it. Hey, sure, why not? Uh, I've been thinking about revisiting a lot of these LucasArts uh, point-and-click recently with Zach McCracken, uh, somewhat recently released on GOG, Grim Fandango recently remastered, Dot just now remastered, Full Throttle remastered in the works, and of course, Thimbleweed Park to come. I am getting tongue-tied. First, were you a Sierra or LucasArts guy? Uh, If you say Sierra, you're wrong. Second, do you have a favorite LucasArts point-and-click game besides Dot? I know you mentioned Dot being in your top five of all time, so I imagine it must be your number one. I love almost every single one of the LucasArts point-and-clicks, but for me, my favorite is without a doubt the original Secret of Monkey Island with Loom coming in a solid second place. Uh, From there, I can't decide whether Monkey Island 2 or Dot would take third place, though I admit that Dot is unarguably the better designed game. That's enough for this time. Thanks for reading my too long email. Uh, Take a second to catch your breath if you need to and always keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Robert. 
Um, you know, as it goes for, see, like I said, dot. Like I said I said it in the dot episode. It's weird because dots in like my top five games of all time. But I think before this last playthrough, I o- I've only played through it maybe one and a half times. So I just have a lot of good memories of it. I've probably played. I like Full Throttle, but it's a little short. Though I do, I do appreciate it a lot. Uh, I think I'm with Alima. I really like Grim Fandango and and uh, the original Monkey Island and Monkey Island Two, right up until the ending. Uh, I think is a really really great game. And but I think of all the Monkey Islands, I might even say that the third Monkey Island is my favorite one. I just really love the core to sort of uh, Disney esque. Um, you know, art style. I like the voice work in there. I really like, I, I love the, the the pirate barbers who sing that ridiculously long pirate song. But really, I think overall, uh, my top LucasArts, if I had to choose a, a game, is probably either Monkey Island 1 or Monkey Island 3. And if I got to choose a series, it would probably be the Monkey Island series, at least the first three games. The rest, meh, the Tales and the 3D one are sort of forgettable. But uh, but yeah, I think just like from from the perspective of, of humor and gameplay and creativity and, and and world and all that, I just thought it was it's a really great creative series. And you know, right after that comes probably Sam and Max or Dot, and then Grim Fandango and Full Throttle. So yeah, I'm probably I think I played Sierra games more, but I think I liked LucasArts games better. If that makes any sense, there were also more Sierra games. You know, we had six Space Quest games, eight King's Quest games. Was it four Gabriel Knight games? Uh, you know, a whole wacko the Leisure Suit Larry games, Quest for Glory games, and I didn't even play. You know, I didn't play all the Quest for Glories. I didn't play. I played all the Larrys, uh, Police Quest. I played all of those. I didn't play all the SWAT games, but those stopping adventure games. So you know, yeah, like I said, a, a ton more Sierra games, but Lucas Arts, I find. LucasArts was sort of quality over quantity. Like they put out Zach McCracken's kind of a not the best game, but uh, you know I didn't play Loom at the time, but Loom's a great game. You know after I played it for the show, and so yeah, yeah I think overall LucasArts is just more of a, a higher quality um, set of games, whereas Sierra just has kind of a deeper library. So thanks for that. Um, Next, and finally, for the uh, beginning of the show emails, we got a quick one from Ben. This actually came in through Patreon. And uh, he writes, Hi, Joe. I notice uh, you have a little personal annoyance when quoting Steam store prices as your default currency is set to Canadian. Uh, I use a great tool called the Steam All Region Price Checker, and it may be of help to you. All you do is paste the Steam store URL for a game, such as uh, you know store.steampower.com slash app slash 37920 for Doom, uh, into its search box, and you'll receive its sale price in multiple currencies, including U.S., uh, pounds, and euros. Uh, you can get that at steamregionalprices.com. So I hope that helps, and uh, thanks for producing one of my favorite retro podcasts. Well, thank you so much, Ben. That's that, that's actually incredibly handy. That's great. And I actually have uh, my GOG account just set to U.S. dollars because it makes my life easier because they just introduced regional pricing as well. All right, so that's that. Thanks for all those emails. And again, apologies for uh, for missing those two. And let's get on with it. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so that was a good chunk of email. And, uh, you know, that's that's what happens when you don't do a show for a while. Uh, lose track of things. Anyways, thanks to everyone. And um, 
Let's get on to the main event. Tyrion or Tyrion. You know what? I call it Tyrion. I don't care if it's wrong. Send me email. It's called Tyrion and I'm going to call it Tyrion. So Tyrion, ha ha ha, is pretty much a single standalone game developed by a company called Eclipse Software and published by Epic Mega Games in the year 1995. So I'm fairly certain I may have to go back through all the other episodes, but I am fairly certain that this is another new genre for the show, uh, which is an event that's becoming rarer and rarer as, as the years roll on. I'm pretty sure that this is the first time we've seen uh, the shoot 'em up genre, or yeah, I guess you can call it a, a shoot 'em up, a shmup, or more specifically, because we like to be specific when we talk about genres, uh, Tyrion is what we call a vertically scrolling shooter. So in a shoot 'em up, your goal is pretty straightforward. Uh, usually consists of some minor variation on kill everything in sight, or at the very least, kill everything in your way, and secondarily, survive until the end of the level. Um, and to do that, you kind of fly through a level, uh, you face off against tougher and tougher enemies, bosses, and environments as you progress through uh, through the game. Aside from that, the rules that define exactly what a shoot 'em up is are pretty nebulous. This is sort of like uh, the rules of an action-adventure game. Uh, so, you know, for, for what we want to call the textbook shoot 'em up uh, you're usually placed in control of a lone vehicle, usually something like an aircraft or a spacecraft, now, some people say, some purists, you know, shoot them up purists, say that if you are not controlling a vehicle, then this is not a shoot 'em up. Yeah, I'm not sure if I hold with that restriction, though. No games off the top of my head really, you know, sort of uh, apply. <laughs> you know, I can't think of anything. Maybe something like Gun Bros or Top Down Contra or something like that. Um, you know, either way, you're, uh, you're generally pitted alone against hordes of enemies who attack you in waves with predefined patterns which uh, can be memorized, you know, predefined attack patterns which can be memorized for maximum lethality. You take on these hordes of baddies with uh, with a variety of weapons acquired either through purchase, through story beats, or even just random drops off of slain enemies or as rewards for create, completing mission objectives, levels, blah, 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 blah. So... That's all fairly straightforward, right? You pilot a thing, you shoot bad guys with a variety of weapons, and you try your best not to die. Now, I did mention that this was not only a shooter, but it is a vertical scrolling shooter. Yes, the viewport makes a good amount of difference in these kinds of games. So in a vertical scrolling shooter, you see your player or vehicle from a top-down view. The world scrolls beneath you from top to bottom, ostensibly you know, by seeing the world scrolling under you, that implies that you are traversing the world. However, the game's perspective remains fixed on you and in your ship's kind of general vicinity. So what it really looks like is that you're standing still and the world is moving by underneath you. Uh, you have the ability generally to move in any direction within your current kind of uh, columnar <laughs> viewport area. And uh, this is a necessity to avoid incoming fire, collisions with enemies, things like that. Uh, at times, perhaps boss battles or things like that, the scrolling may come to a halt. Uh, as the player, you usually lack all control over the uh, the rate that the world scrolls at. 
So you scroll through the levels, you defeat enemies, and eventually you emerge victorious in whatever story framework your game is set in. And hopefully you feel some sense of accomplishment. So that's general. Now let's talk Tyrion. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Okay, this is the part of the game where I use the game, the show where I usually talk about story. Now, there is one here, but before I get too far into it, let's set one thing straight. Shoot 'em ups are not generally known for their deep and complex worlds and stories. Now, on one hand, Tyrion falls firmly into this camp. On the other hand, there's actually some reasonable amount of information provided to you throughout the full game mode to give you a notion of of why you're doing what you're doing, or at least where you're doing what you're doing. So here's the plot of Tyrion, such as it is. It is the year 20,032. That's not 2032, that's 20032. That's like 10, 20,000 years from now. And uh, you are Trent Hawkins, a generically named and highly skilled terraforming pilot. As a terraforming pilot, your job is to scout out locations on newly terraformed worlds, uh, which are ideal for settlement. So a new world getting terraformed, you look around, say, hey, this is a great place to put a city. Your latest assignment is to run recon missions over the newly terraformed world of Tyrion. Now, one day, for no apparent reason, Trent's best friend and fellow pilot, a lizard-like alien named Buskwisilak, I guess is how you say it. <laughs> Anyways, Bus or Buche, if you want. Maybe he's Italian and his name is Buche Quisiliak. I don't know. Anyways, Buse, Booch, Bruce, I don't know. Your friend <laughs> is shot in the back by a hover drone. As he dies, he tells Trent that his murder is in fact the work of Microsoul, the corporation in control of Tyrion's terraforming. It turns out that Buse, I hate this guy's name, <laughs> had discovered a new mineral on one of his recent terraforming flights. Uh, this mineral, called Gravidium, has the ability to control gravity. Of course, being a horrible, faceless corporation, Microsoul wants the Gravidium for itself and is willing to kill to keep its existence secret. With warships powered by Gravidium, Microsoul would be unstoppable. Armed with this knowledge, his small recon fighter, and a little bit of money, Trent now has to make his way off of Microsoul-controlled Tyrion to the free world of Savara, where he can reveal Microsoul's plans to the greater galactic community, or die trying. All right, so, you know, it's a little bit generic, but uh, it's a lot more than we usually get in a game like this. So that amount of story better have some decent gameplay behind it. So let's talk about that now. As we've discussed, you are in command of a small ship that gets outfitted with a wide variety of weapons, and this gets accomplished through a wide variety of game modes. Uh, we're going to touch on two of the big guys, uh, and let's start with the most complex one, full story mode. So in full story mode, you aren't just getting a shoot 'em up. You're getting a full experience with some modicum of actual strategy involved. Uh, entering full story mode, 
the first thing you notice is a menu that's a bit more complete than the one that's presented to you in, uh, in other modes. The first option here is unique to this mode and it's labeled data. And data has four cubes next to it when you start the game. Uh, you quickly come to realize that each of these cubes is in fact a message. Uh, some of these messages provide information about the world you're about to fly over. Others give you some background info about yourself and uh, others give you info about the world at large. And some are just silly news items giving you a look into society in the year 20,032. So with all that stuff aside, you read and you're interested and, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the next thing that you have to do is outfit your ship. And in story mode, this is fully up to you. You have to manage your funds. You have to outfit your ship. So you start off with the lightest and cheapest ship, the USP Talon. Uh, this is the ship you were able to get your hands on at short notice in, uh, in the story that we talked about. So no matter which ship you end up in, however, they all basically have the same number of weapons hard points. So upgrading your ship really only upgrades your, uh, your armor. Uh, by default, your ship, whichever one you may have, is only equipped with a standard front-firing pulse cannon. Now, you're going to want to upgrade that as soon as you possibly can. And actually, for the initial mission of Episode 1, uh, you sort of have to. Now, you only have access to cheaper weapons that are suitable for the planet you're escaping at this point in time. Uh, you have your, your initial pulse cannon, which uh, just fires two shots forward, a multi-cannon, which fires a spread of shots in a wide cone in front of your ship, a Vulcan cannon, which is a more rapid fire, and the Protron, which fires slower than the Vulcan but packs more punch per shot. Uh, you also have access to a set of starter rear guns. Now, I was confused about the rear guns when I first started playing. In fact, even when I replayed the game this time, I sort of forgot. And uh, the, the concept of a rear gun is sort of a weird one in this game. You see, your rear gun you would assume would, you know, fire toward the rear, fire backwards. It doesn't do that. Now, it may be mounted in the rear of your ship, but it will either also fire forward or it might fire out to the side or at an angle. Again, there's a wide variety of rear weapons for purchase uh, as you progress through the game's episode and, uh, and you know, they get kind of better and better as you progress through through the levels. Now, one thing can be said about your main guns. Your main guns are sort of your, your forward and rear guns. They basically have unlimited ammunition. So the second the level starts, you start shooting and you only ever need to stop shooting in some very particular situations, which we'll get into. So next, aside from your front and rear guns, uh, we have sidekicks. Now sidekicks take the form of either these floaty little orbs or little like escort drones that fly alongside you and also add to your firepower. Uh, much like their main and rear guns, uh, sidekicks come in a huge array of forms and that applies even more in this case. Uh, sidekicks can simply add to your forward-facing firepower. Uh, however, they can also take the form of uh, limited ammunition weapons that pack a bit more of a punch. Uh, these limited ammo sidekicks come in the form of things like mini-missiles, seekers, slow-moving but powerful bombs to massive but very low ammunition, things like mega-missiles and plasma storms that can frankly just clear the entire screen of enemies in one shot. You might only get three shots of it, but, you know, it's, it's a nice kind of oh-crap button. Now, you also, in full story mode, have the ability 
to upgrade your power generator and your energy shields. Uh, better shields, pretty basic, equal uh, more protection, but uh, there, there's a bigger draw on your power generator. A bigger generator means more available power for everything. Now, your weapons sort of have this base rate of fire, so even if your power generator runs out of power, you're still gonna be able to shoot. However, having more power available will allow your guns to shoot a little bit faster, slightly higher uh, rate of fire. And if you have available extra power, your shields will also recharge should they take damage. Now, if your guns are too powerful and they're eating up all of your power and your power meter, which is displayed on the right side of the screen, uh, is all the way at the bottom and can't really recharge and shoot, 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 and I can't do anything else, your shields are going to stay down. Now, this is that situation I was talking about where it might pay to stop shooting for a minute if there's no enemies on the screen because your power generator reserves will recharge fairly quickly and uh, your shields will begin to also recharge, which is uh, which is pretty handy because your shields recharge and then uh, if your shields are down, you're going to take hull damage and your hull won't recharge unless uh, you pick up a drop. So there's these little uh, support ships that fly in and if you blow them up, they'll drop some, uh, some hull repair and you can repair your hull that way. But yeah, it's not really ideal. So, you know, you got all these upgrades that you got to figure out how to, how to handle. Uh, and each level you basically get, when you start off the game, you have a base amount of money for upgrades. And, uh, you know, as you progress through the levels, you will accumulate additional money and uh, don't make the mistake that I did, like I said a little bit before, and not choose to upgrade anything at all. Um, you have to. I mean, I tried to play the first level with just the basic gun, and you could probably do it, but it's not that much fun. Uh, so after you kind of settle on your upgrades, you get launched into the first level, escaping the planet Tyrion. So as in most shoot-em-ups, uh, your ship is placed at the bottom of the screen and in the center. Your controls move your ship anywhere within the viewport, as the world scrolls by beneath you, uh, enemies of varying difficulty enter from the top and sometimes also from the bottom of the screen. Uh, enemies come in at predetermined times and fly with predetermined maneuvers, all the better for you to preemptively position yourself in an effort to destroy them with your selected weapon systems. Now, the first level actually has three or four different little stages in it. And this is true for, for most of the levels in the game. Uh, you know, it's not just kind of one thing for the entire level. So in this first level of episode one, uh, the first part, you're basically just flying over Tyrion, killing the flying enemies that come at you. Very, very basic kind of traditional shoot 'em up style. Second, you approach a set of enemy defense platforms where you continue to kill flying enemies, but you also have to contend with stationary, slightly more armored defense emplacements. Finally, you're required to avoid some large claw things, <laughs> I don't know what else to call them, that jut out into your path. Well, uh, again, you're still contending with flying enemies of various types who are trying to cloud you into a collision with these virtually indestructible weird claw things. Finally, stage four, you've got a boss battle, wherein you pour tons and tons of firepower into a large bullet sponge enemy ship while avoiding its relatively easy attack pattern. Uh, should you die, one of your lives gets taken away and you respawn in exactly the same place with temporary invincibility, total arcade style. Uh, if you run out of lives, you return to the mission start menu where you're given all of your money back and allowed to try a different loadout with pretty much no penalty aside from that you have to start the whole level over and frankly levels aren't that long so 
you progress through the game's levels, occasionally being given a choice of where to proceed. Like, oh, you get to an asteroid belt and there's Asteroids 1, which is, uh, you know, a level that has fewer, bigger, harder to destroy asteroids or Asteroids 2, which is more of kind of like a rain of asteroids that you could firepower your way through, but there's more chance of, uh, you know, getting hit. Between each level, you're brought back to the store. You're allowed to upgrade your weaponry and even your ship type. You said you can slowly upgrade your ship type to the the best or the second best ship. Uh, You also collect additional data cubes from destroyed enemies. And as we've seen, these data cubes further the story and give us more and more background information about the next area. And frankly, there are a lot of these data cubes. I'd be... I think if I was playing this game, I don't remember playing, reading through a lot of these when I was a kid, but I feel like if I had discovered them when I was a kid, I probably would have read them all just because that's what I did. So on top of switching weapons in and out, each weapon can also be upgraded to level 11. Yep. All the weapons in this game go to 11. Uh, This means each of them can basically be upgraded a total of 10 times, starting from level one. As you upgrade them, they get more and more powerful. They do kind of slightly different things. It's actually a pretty cool system. There's a lot of thought put into all the different weapon systems, all the different upgrade levels of them. Some of them have alt fire modes. It's it's quite cool. Um, Depending on the release of the game, which we'll get into in, uh, in Dev Story, I mean, depending on which release of the game you're playing, um, it lasts either three to five episodes and each episode consists of eight to 10 or so, maybe eight to 12 missions along with bonus levels in each episode. I mean, this is a surprising amount of content. So that's story mode. Now in arcade mode, you play through the same sets of levels. However, all pretense of story is gone. There's no data cubes, there's no store, there's no shield generators, there's no power generators, and there's no cutscenes except for a couple of levels where they're sort of hard-coded in. But, you know, in arcade, we're just talking action. Uh, instead of upgrading your ship via money, you upgrade your weapons only via drops from destroyed destroyed enemies. Uh, you know, this makes the action much more frenetic uh, as you have to change your tactics based on what drops you get versus what you like to play. <laughs> frankly the worst is when you get a loadout you really like and you're kicking ass and you're tearing everything down and then you kill someone and you accidentally fly into a different and much crappier weapon type oh <laughs> it's awful um no aside from arcade mode there's a two-player mode a timed level mode and a variety of other more sort of cheaty level modes that you can play by entering codes into the game uh, if you care to find them you can uh find the codes on wikipedia they're not big secrets but uh you know these levels include include kind of a tank wars slash scorched earth style game uh there's a kill everything on screen or die game mode a galaxian style game mode where you need to you know there's like a a massive enemies and you got to kill them all before they get down to you and um another one where you gather ale while dodging bouncing enemies it's it's actually a little bit Weird. So yeah, a bunch of different game modes, a bunch of different gameplay options, a bunch of different weapons, a bunch of different ways to play this game, which is frankly pretty cool. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, tech focus time. So to run Tyrion, well, actually to be precise, to run Tyrion 2000, the 1999 re-release, because that's the one that's easy to get, uh, you basically needed the following. You needed MS-DOS, I believe 5.0, uh, or Windows 95 or 98. Now we're going to get to that in a bit. That's sort of a, a fake out. Basically, you needed DOS. Uh, on top of that, you needed a Pentium 133 megahertz, 8 megs of RAM, and a whopping 9 megabytes of hard drive space. I assume that's for Tyrion 2000, the full five-episode game. Uh, for controls, you needed a keyboard and a mouse, a CD-ROM drive, and a graphics card capable of pushing VGA at 320 by 200, displaying 256 colors. Uh, actually, you know... The keyboard and the mouse reminds me. Uh, I didn't mention the control scheme during the gameplay section, so I'm going to do it right here. Um, so, of course, you can use uh, the keyboard or the mouse. I think you might be able to use a joystick as well, but I'm, I, I couldn't find any documentation about that. Uh, mouse control, to me, is really the way to go here. Uh, you know, Moving the mouse moves your ship in a corresponding manner. Uh, the left mouse button fires your main guns, and the right button fires your limited ammo sidekicks. Now, if you have unlimited ammo sidekicks, say you have the Vulcan Cannon sidekick, they simply fire along with the mains on the left button. Now, if for some odd reason you only want to fire your sidekicks, you can still do that via the right button. I could see that there's a couple of, uh, of main guns where there's like this lasery one where when you first fire it, it fires kind of a big wide beam and then fires a thinner, less powerful beam. So I could see firing your constant, your unlimited ammo sidekicks and kind of tapping your main gun. So, you know, I could see some some point there. Anyway, so that's the controls. Uh, like I said, mouse sort of the way to go just because of precision. I could see the, the, the keyboard being very kind of kludgy to do kind of more precision maneuvers, precision avoidances and things like that. Uh, the game's music was composed by Alexander Brandon. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to talk about him quite a bit in the dev story, but just as a quick overview, uh, he created music for many epic games. However, he got his start in, uh, in the digital music world, I guess we'll call it, at 14 years of age when he got his hands on his first ad lib card. Now, this ad lib eventually led him to get into composing modern tracker music and, uh, you know, brought him into the demo scene which we've talked about in passing on uh, some of our patron hangouts, uh, you know, and, and a bunch of those guys, uh, Tomer for sure, and trolls and whatever, know uh, know quite a bit more about the demo scene than I ever will. But uh, Brandon was apparently well known in the scene as uh, Siren, among a couple of other names. But Siren was sort of his main uh, handle. Either way, the game's mod music is fast-paced and exciting, just like the game gameplay. Brandon does a really great job with that. Uh, a lot of fun. You're hearing a bit of it now. And uh, yeah, really, really cool. Podcast. Time for 
Okay, Dev, story time. So while a good number of people touched Tyrion in its various incarnations and its various uh, you know phases of development, uh, there's really three main guys that really kind of were the core of bringing the game to life. And, uh, you know, only only two of them were there right at the beginning. So let's start off with uh, with the, the first guy, the programmer, Jason Emery. Now, Jason grew up in Maryland. And, uh, you know, in his high school days, he wrote and released some games on the HP 48 graphing calculator, including a, an interesting-looking adventure series called NortQuest. Uh, eventually... He got into, uh, you know, the end of high school and into college, and uh, he took an interest in a platform that was slightly more complex than a calculator, uh, the IBM PC. Now, Jason was a big fan of shoot-em-ups. Uh, he really liked uh, kind of later games from Hudson Soft, like Star Soldier, Star Force, and a couple of others that he's mentioned in, uh, you know, some postings and interviews and stuff. Um Another game that he was very into, and uh, most likely the most direct inspiration for Tyrion, was a game called Xanak, uh, a Japanese shoot 'em up that was released in 1986 for various systems, including the MSX and the NES. Uh, so his main motivation for making his own games was pretty simple. He really enjoyed playing games. However, he didn't really have access to, to a ton of money to actually buy games, so instead, he decided, hey, I like playing games. Why don't I just make them myself so I can play them and have fun? So this interest in, in making games so he could play led him to teach himself assembly language programming and, uh, and then turn his attentions, like I said, to seeing what the PC could do. So in 1991, he started messing around with creating a vertically scrolling background in an effort to emulate the shoot-em-up games that he really enjoyed. Uh, it was also sort of a time of learning for him, experimenting with this different, you know, assembly language routines, graphics, filters, all kinds of stuff like that, just figuring out how this whole thing works. Now, I haven't done a ton of assembly programming uh, in my career. The last time I did it was probably back in my my undergrad. We had um, a system software. Was it system software? No, this was a system hardware class where... We had to, what was our, one of our assignments was to make a tic-tac-toe game using, you know, a graphical, well, you know, kind of text mode, but graphical tic-tac-toe game using Assembler. I think I printed out my code for some, because back in the day in university, we had to print out our code and hand it in on, on big tractor impact printer paper. And um, I think my tic-tac-toe game came out to something to the effect of 72 pages of code. It was pretty awful. So, uh, you know, suffice it to say, to learn to be a good assembly language programmer, you really got to futz around and experiment and, and understand why a computer does what it does and how it does it. So, you know, before he got into all this really deep experimentation, um, he showed his scrolling background prototype to his friend, Alexander Brandon. Now, the two students continued developing the game together uh, with, you know, Brandon helping to design levels and do some art stuff and, and a little bit of that. Well, Emery wrote more assembler code, more lines of assembler. Uh, their shoot 'em up became, like I said, a sort of sandbox for Emery to try things out on. You know, if, if he read a magazine or he read, you know, somewhere about a cool programming trick or a cool routine he hadn't heard of, he'd put it into the game, whether or not it was really needed or not. Uh, the two of them 
also put quite a bit of writing time into Tyrion, adding tons and tons of info in the form of those data cubes, uh, you know, in the world. Uh, in a post over at a Tyrion message board, um, Emery posted himself, and he actually says sometimes he regrets putting as much text into the game as they did. But, you know, at a certain point, either before that or after that, um, they felt their basic game was good enough to pitch to some publishers. Uh, you know, the graphics were pretty amateurish. They looked nothing like they looked in the game that we know. And, you know, neither of them were really artists. And despite Brandon's demo scene background, uh, there was no music or sound in the game. I think basically because neither of them really knew how to lay it in. I mean, Brandon might be able to make music, but he didn't know how to get it to play in the game. And frankly, they figured it wasn't really time for that. So, you know, even with these deficiencies, quote unquote, um, they went ahead and pitched the game to the two biggest companies they could think of, Apogee and Epic Mega Games. Now, given the rough nature of the project, publishers were not overly enthused. Like, man, it's sort of rough, kind of missing some stuff. I don't know if we really want to throw any money at this. So, you know, somewhat discouraged, they went home, continued to work on their game, and continued shopping, eventually pitching to Robert Allen, who ran a publishing house called Safari Software, which was a smaller publisher who actually ended up having a distribution agreement with Epic Mega Games. Uh, Alan was kind of interested in the game and uh, he had at some point received a call from someone else who said, hey, you got to look at this game. It's very similar to Zanuck. And if you haven't played it, Zanuck is a really cool game. And, uh, you know, I think it worked really well. And Alan agreed, figured, oh, you know, this game, we could do some stuff to it. And I think it'd be a good fit for, you know, the kinds of games that we put out. So they signed a they signed a publishing deal and uh, getting a publisher gave them, as it does, access to art and sound resources they didn't have before. Uh, you know, there were some initial UI and character graphics done by in-house artists until Brandon tapped the the third major member of our team here, Daniel Cook, who was an artist whose work had been passed to Brandon by uh, by a friend. So, you know, they sort of said, okay, well, we like your work. Give us some samples. So Cook did some sample work on his Amiga 1200, and he submitted it. Uh, Emery, Brandon, and the other uh, the other people who'd been brought on the team by the publisher looked at the stuff, and they loved it. They asked him for more. Uh, they, he did ship graphics, backgrounds, character art, all that stuff, uh, you know, was done by Cook over a four-month period. In fact, he says on his blog, that uh, you know, Tyrion, the four-month Tyrion contract was his first real game development job, which was really actually just a summer job. Uh, on top of this art that was really, really well done by Cook, uh, a sound engine was uh, was laid into the game, and Brandon's musical talents were, of course, tapped to create the game's soundtrack. Uh, things were progressing nicely, and as more graphics and sound assets and polish and levels and everything were added in, the game's popularity over at Epic Mega Games was sort of on the rise. Now, remember, Epic and Safari Software have a, a distribution deal, so Epic would be uh, would be eventually actually distributing this game, so they had access to it through its development, kind of seeing how it was going, and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, the game kept getting more and more popular, and Epic kept taking a bigger and bigger interest in, in this little game that they had previously... Uh, basically told to to go away now 
you know, the, the game was intended to be light and fun, hence the, the humorous writing and sometimes ridiculous weapons. Uh, you know, Emery would ask for silly art assets like uh, this immensely powerful carrot ship. And no one questioned it, at least according to him, and, and went ahead with it, especially uh, especially the art, the art dude here, Daniel Cook. Like, oh, yeah, draw me a, uh, a spaceship that's a carrot. And he just jumped and did it. So... Right near release in 1995, Tim Sweeney, the head of Epic Mega Games, who I don't think I've ever talked about in uh, on this show before. Uh, we'll have to do some more epic stuff. Uh, he basically let the Tyrion team know, apparently personally, that uh, the game would not come out under the Safari software label, but would be released as a full-on Epic Mega Games uh, production and would have the full power of Epic's marketing machine behind it. I imagine, uh, you know, Safari games, while they were being distributed, they didn't have quite the quite the same juice behind them that they put under a, an official Epic Mega Games release. So the game released on June 10th, 1995, via Shareware. Uh, that version was Tyrion version 1.0, which contained the first episode of the game. Now, you know, we know how Shareware works, because we've talked about it back in, uh, you know, the, the Wolf 3D show and the Doom show and and all of that. But, uh, you know, if you wanted more than that first episode, you had to register your copy by sending money to Epic, who would send, then send you the full game. Uh, This was version 1.1, which contained the original three episodes of Tyrion, along with a ship editor, which was, you know, kind of a fun little add-on. Version 2.0 came out shortly thereafter with a fourth episode. The game reviewed very, very well, winning a few Action Game of the Year awards, sold well. The shareware model was amazingly profitable for uh, for Epic and for the Tyrion team. Four years later, though, another publisher, XSIV Games, would get the, uh, the publishing rights for Tyrion and release another update, Tyrion 2000, which contained even more updates, more weapons, a fifth episode... And, you know, as I alluded to in the tech focus, a pseudo Windows compatibility via an included PIF or program information file, which basically simply ran the game in DOS mode under those newer OSs. So PIF files were basically just these little text files that, uh, you know, if you launched a DOS program, I believe if I remember correctly, it would look for a .pif program information file uh, with the same name as the executable. And, uh, you know, if it contained some information, it would auto launch the game in, in DOS mode without having you have to go into Windows 95, you know, restart, restart in DOS mode and then maneuver through the DOS command line and, uh, and start the game. Basically, you know, re-rebooting your machine to, to play a DOS game and then having to exit and reboot to go back into Windows. It was kind of kludgy and awful. So, uh, you know, this PIF was kind of like a hack to make that a little easier, but you know, it wasn't really a Windows Win 9X compatible game. It was just a DOS game that ran with a PIF file. Either way, Tyrion 2000, also immensely popular, sold very well, blah 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 So what does the future hold? For Tyrion. Well, I don't know if we're going to talk about the future per se, but after the last release of Tyrion 2000, XSIV Games eventually went bankrupt, as many game publishers do. Uh, It appears, though, that Jason Emery either retained or paid for or did something with the rights to the game, and he decided to release Tyrion 2000 as freeware. 
Uh, this included the PC version and actually the unreleased Game Boy Advance and Game Boy Color versions that were in development. I believe he actually even worked on them with some of the members of the uh, the original team. Uh, but those versions actually never saw the light of day since the publishers of those games also went under before those projects were complete. They were pretty much done. They just never got quite around to release. Uh, in addition to these three versions that were put out as freeware, another group of developers decided to port the game from uh, you know the Pascal and Assembler code base that uh, it was done in already to a more compatible, more modern uh, C code base and published that out on Bitbucket as the Open Tyrion project. You can actually still go to uh, Bitbucket and, and grab that code and do whatever the crap you want with it. Now, because of this Open Tyrion project and the release of the original game and the art assets, which were released later on by, uh, I can't remember anyone's name in this episode, by Cook, was it? The art dude? Looking through my notes, looking through my notes. Anyways, by the art guy, I think his name is Daniel Cook. That's it, Daniel Cook. Daniel Cook. Uh, He also released all of his art assets, so it does seem like a lot of the assets sort of reverted to the people that made them, which is sort of a weird deal. But anyways, he released the art assets. Uh, You know, Emery released the code. The code was ported, so there's just a ton, a ton of ports because of all this availability to many, many platforms. It's a lot like Doom or Wolf 3D. You know, it'll run on an old iPod. It'll run on, you know, maybe a calculator, but maybe not, you know, all kinds of anything probably has a version of Tyrion that runs on it. So that said, I probably don't have to tell you where you can get Tyrion today. You know, since it's free, you can basically get it almost anywhere. You can download and compile the source yourself if you want to. However, I would recommend the easiest place uh, to get it being over at GOG.com. In fact, I'm not sure if they still do it because I haven't created a GOG account in a long time, but I know at least when I opened an account years ago, Tyrion is actually just auto-added to your library along with a few other freeware games, I think like Lure of the Temptress and and some other stuff uh, like that. And uh, maybe even, uh, what's that other game that came after Lure of the Temptress that I I covered? Beneath a Steel Sky, yes, also free. So those ones I think just get auto-added to your account. So you just have them. So basically... You have no excuse not to play this game. It costs you nothing except your time. Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence. Okay, so before we get to the verdict, as we do, we've got a couple of emails, and I'm pretty sure I didn't forget any this time. So the first one is from Chris, and Chris writes, So one summer, while we were on holiday, I remember my dad receiving a phone call. He listened for a bit and then swore out loud. This was a big deal for me because my dad never swore. Our house had been broken into, and uh, while very little had been taken, it turned out that our ancient Amstrad PPC had been stolen. Uh, Little did I know at the time, but this turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened to me from a gaming and maybe even working perspective. A few weeks later, the insurance payout went through, and we became the proud owners of a 486DX266, with speakers and a proper monitor, and oh my god, I was so happy. Uh, the PC also had a 4X CD drive, and one Saturday, my dad handed me a magazine. It was PC format, CD number 19 to be precise, which you can get at uh, archive.org. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, two demos stuck out for me, Worms and Tyrion, of course. 
I had been used to playing old simple games up until the unfortunate theft of our old PC, but Tyrion, wow. This is what gaming was all about. This wasn't some knockoff, washdown experience. This was fast, colorful, action-packed, and my god, the music. The music for the first level, which I know you will play a clip of, uh, ad-lib OPL preferably, hits such a deep nerve in respect to me and DOS Gaming. I'm taken to a, back to a very happy place. Tyrion still holds up today, and I happily play it once every year or so. I'm looking forward to this episode of UMBcast very much. Thanks, as always, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, I guess, how, how life does that. Something. You know, sometimes you think back and you go, oh, God, you know, our house was broken into. It was a horrible invasion of our privacy and our sense of security and all that. You know, I had uh, a friend in high school whose house burned down. And again, you know, it's a horrible experience. But at the end, you kind of recover from it. And, you know, sometimes, thanks to insurance, you're, you're, you end up in a, in a better place that you began and and you know, I'm sure there's a lot of loss of memories and, and things like that and all, but you know, it, it kind of sometimes is a trigger for, for these greater things. And, and, you know, a kind of, I can't imagine upgrading from an Amstrad PPC to, to a 486. You know, I went through kind of every iteration of the PC from the, you know, a PC to an XT to a 286 to a 386 to a 486 to a Pentium one. So, you know, I can't imagine it's, it's like having a, like I said, a pocket calculator and then getting this like wicked gaming machine. So I could only imagine what that was like. So that's great. Next, we have an email from Brian. And Brian writes, Hello, Joe, blockers, and fellow carrot pilots. Boy, do I love Tyrion. I've played tons of shoot 'em ups and have many favorites like 1942, Raiden, and Time Pilot, but Tyrion is definitely my favorite. It has so much depth, variety, and personality that it's impossible to dislike. I play it every year. I've been playing Tyrion since I had a 486. I remember playing on the highest graphical settings, which recommended a Pentium, and the game ran like molasses. Uh, I've since gotten in the habit of playing on the second highest setting, which still looks great, but removes the full scene effects like spotlights, color shading, and other things that make the game harder to see. I greatly appreciate the author, Jason Emery, open sourcing the code and giving the game away for free. It's nice seeing a game go from shareware to an even more permissive license. My favorite application of the source code is Open Tyrion DS, a Nintendo DS port of the game. It runs very well on that slow, low-res machine, and it makes nice use of the dual screens. It's a real pleasure to play with a stylus. Uh, you'll need a special DS or DSi cartridge with an SD card slot to play this homebrew source port. Here's a link. It's uh, vespinegas.com slash We're going to put that in the show notes as well. That's Joe talking. Speaking of the controls, I used to play the PC version with uh, the keyboard, but since trying the DS port, I now play with the mouse. How about you, Joe? Telling me banana bombs, Brian. P.S. There's even a source port for the Microsoft Zune portable music player. Well, thank you, Brian. And um, yeah, I am definitely a mouse guy. It just, like I said, you know, it's uh, like I said in tech focus, it's just so much more precise that uh, you know, I, I, I honestly at this point can't imagine playing any other way next and finally uh we have an email from uh from my buddy ben and ben writes hello joe and my fellow blockers Tyrion is a game that i first played just as i was starting to make pixel graphics and what a game to be schooled and inspired by bad gradients always look terrible and are a thing you pixel artists are warned to keep away from good gradients well they look like Tyrion. 
I still come back to look at the wonderful VGA art now that making visuals for games is my job to marvel at the thoughtful lighting, the intricate texturing, and the fantastic use of color that present the whole game, except for the much worse looking fifth chapter they added later. It doesn't hurt that the game's also a blast to play. Plenty of weapons to choose from, lots of enemies, and a difficulty that can be adjusted to suit your tastes. Uh, whether I just fire it up and blast through a chapter quickly in the arcade mode or run through the story mode and enjoy the tongue-in-cheek writing and the process of building up my ship carefully, this game is always a good bit of fun. It's got a few balance issues, and lots of people seem to prefer Raptor Call of the Shadows, which I played slightly before Tyrion and like less, but uh, there's plenty of fun to be had with this great old game. Keep on blocking, and I look forward to hearing the show. Ben. Well, thank you, Ben. And, um, you know, I'm actually glad you called out uh, a couple of things. I'm glad you called out the art, because I I didn't really call out the art as much as I probably should have. This is, this is a great-looking game, and I think it's very easy for, for games, especially games like shoot-em-ups, to kind of get very muddy and messed up and busy looking and you know to have too many enemies on the screen and to have them look too much the same and to have the colors of everything kind of be very similar but you know i kind of feel like your ship versus the enemy ships versus the ground versus obstacles everything is is very distinct and and not in a bad way like you're able to tell what everything is tell it apart even when things get a little hairy that you know the effects of the graphics the effects of the weapons are all very well done and and you know like like you said you know I, I'm I'm definitely not an artist but you don't notice anything in the game which is almost like it sounds like it sounds not good but it's a huge compliment you don't notice that the graphics look great because everything just fits together and yeah it's 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 just wonderful and yeah it, it you know the the amount of game modes is very interesting like you said you pop into arcade mode and just blast away or you play through the story and sort of build things up and try different things. It's very interesting, very good depending on your mood, depending on how you like to play games. It's It's got something almost for everyone. Okay, so does Tyrion hold up today? Absolutely, yes. I mean, this game is, is relatively fast-paced, but not so much that it's crushingly hard. And in fact, you can even adjust the game speed. So if you feel like it's going a bit too slow, you want a bit more challenge, you want a bit more stuff coming at you, up the game speed, up the difficulty, and uh, and you've got a bigger challenge. Uh, the graphics look great. Music is great. The variety of game modes uh, means there's something for most people to play. Personally, and you know, maybe you guys will get mad at me about this. I don't know. But my preference is actually arcade mode. Yeah, you know, I... I I love the way you have to constantly be on the lookout for new weapon drops, how you have to adjust yourself based on what you end up with. I even like the fact that you can mess up and replace a great weapon combo with a poorer one. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, you know, it just it keeps life interesting. Now, that's not to say story mode isn't good. It's just a more guided experience with each level offering a different set of gear that you can play with in a more thoughtful manner. And I guess to me, shoot-em-ups aren't supposed to be thoughtful. They're just supposed to be insane. So... You know, I'm, I'm giving story mode all the props that it deserves. It's well done. You know, there's a lot of background information, which is usually something I really enjoy, but it just didn't fit the style of game for me. But that's just my opinion. And I'm not taking anything away from the story mode. I just like the, the arcade mode better. Now, on top of that, the fact that the game is free for download, both as a fully compiled game and as source code ready for porting to other platforms or other modifications is frankly just amazing. Now, this is one of those games 
that you can sit down and play for five minutes or you can play for five hours. It's, it's cathartic, you know, not quite in the way that Doom is, but it's kind of cathartic in a more fun, less gruesome, bloody sort of way. So, you know, like I just said, you literally have no excuse not to try this game. It's free and it's tons of fun. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So that's that. Next time, I plan on covering a game in honor of the 50th anniversary of one of my favorite franchises of all time, Star Trek. I'm also rolling back to adventure games with the Spectrum Holobyte Adventure Star Trek The Next Generation of Final Unity. It's been a very long time since I played this one, and I'm very excited to give it a go. So as always, you can send email or audio comments about either a Final Unity, this one, dot a whole bunch of other stuff, whatever you want, send me email to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You find him over at moyermultimedia.com. And don't forget, if you enjoy the show, you can support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast. Uh, if you find some value from the show, please con- consider joining my 50 current patron, 50 people. That's freaking amazing. And, uh, you know, join them in donating a buck or two per show help me with costs and hit the next goal of more longer games. Uh, if you want to partake, we're probably in some point in later September, maybe, uh, we're going to have, uh, what I believe is our sixth Patreon hangout. So $5 or more per show, which really ends up being five bucks a month. Cause frankly, at this point I put out a show a month, whether or not I want to put them out more often. Um, you want to partake, uh, five bucks a month per show and you can come hang out with, uh, all of us wacky folk on the, on the Patreon hangout. Uh, if you guys have any suggestions on topics, feel free to drop me those on social media or on the email. Uh, aside from that, show notes for this show and all the other shows at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at podcast, Facebook podcast, facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter, twitter.com slash show, and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on YouTube over at youtube.com slash umbcast. I put up some Tyrion video of me getting confused about uh, story mode because I didn't remember how it worked and playing arcade mode as well. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, and that is that, and we will see you next time for a final unity here in the upper memory block.
Battle control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.